Hello there. <laughs> Welcome to Opinionated Science. My name is Lucy Lawrence. I'm the digital content producer here at Technology Networks. And today I will be your host. I am just so excited to tell you that today we will be joined by Dr. Armand Balboni. He is the most interesting guest for this vaccine podcast. And let me tell you why. Fueled by this long-standing fascination with infectious diseases and pandemics, just like the Black Death, Dr. Armand Balboni earned a dual MD-PhD degree in New York, having spent 17 years in the US military as an officer working on a number of infectious diseases like Ebola and malaria. He's just honestly the most incredible storyteller. In this podcast, we go on to talk about the up-to-date knowledge on the latest trends in vaccine development and manufacturing in areas like influenza vaccines, the COVID vaccine, and then we also talk about the huge pushes for HIV vaccines and the potential successes, and then even human infection models for vaccine testing and how vaccines have just changed the human landscape as we see it today. Honestly, it's jam-packed full of incredible information, and I know that you're going to be hooked on it. Before we go any further though, I'd like to let you know that this episode is kindly brought to you by Sinobiological. Sinobiological is an internationally recognised reagent supplier and contract research organisation specialising in recombinant protein production and antibody development. To support the development of vaccines, therapeutic antibodies and immunodiagnostic assays, Sinobiological has produced monkeypox virus monoclonal antibody pairs for lateral flow assays, antigens for the 2015 to 2023 influenza vaccine strange, and a large collection of Omicron antigens and detection antibodies. Sinobiological has developed the world's largest recombinant viral antigen bank, Provir, including 1,100 antigens and 380 viral strains and more. For more information, you can visit www.sinobiological.com. But without further ado, you're about to listen to this incredible podcast in full. Enjoy. Hello, how are you? I'm doing well, thank you. Perfect. And as I've already mentioned in this podcast, I'm so excited to be speaking with you. And thank you so much for giving us your time. Um, You have this incredibly interesting background. I already know that you spent over 20 years in the US military and you're still active in the reserves. Um, But I just wanted to dig a bit deeper into this. Can you tell us a bit more about your background and how you got into this space and then how that really ties in with your work in the vaccine space? Sure. So, um, it, it's a bit of a it's a bit of a, a journey as are most careers. Um, it doesn't actually end up where you think it will when you start. Mm-hmm. Um, so I think for me it started um, with with my interest around uh, research and human disease. And so I, I went and pursued my uh, both my MD and my PhD um, uh, in New York mm-hmm. um, and did uh, infectious disease research, but but really tied to human disease. Um, and so I was less interested, I have to say, in the in the, the minutiae or the bugs at the bench mm-hmm. and more interested about how the bugs um, impacted humans. And, and so for me, that's really where um, my interest um, were. Um, I had a, a great advisors um, in graduate school, like like most do and mentors mm-hmm. who kind of pushed me in a direction that I think they saw something that I didn't. Um, I had had a, a history of military service prior to doing that work. And so I could, they, they encouraged me to continue that. Much of my funding actually came from the, from the, from the military. Oh, nice. um, and, and, uh, and that really set me down a path of, of how I was going to apply the research 
um, to the, the military members um, and, and how I might be able to, to add value there. Okay. Um, mentors, again, stepped in when I was pulled on to active duty full time. Mm-hmm. Um, and and they really pushed me down a path of um, of what is what is the uh, a very specific area of military medical readiness in chem biodefense, mm-hmm. and so that was looking at very esoteric diseases. In this case, it was looking at uh, a group of viruses called filoviruses back in 2011, um, before uh, before the big Ebola outbreak, mm-hmm. um, and so uh, Ebola is one of those filoviruses. Um, and and so it really pushed me down this path of how do we deal with um, impacts to the warfighter, to the military members um, uh, in, in these kind of very esoteric areas of chem biodefense. Mm-hmm. And so that really continued over 20 years, including time with the Food and Drug Administration um, in 2014 as a DOD fellow, Department of Defense fellow, mm-hmm. um, where I w- went to West Africa as part of the 2014 outbreak of Ebola. And, and really, at that point, I started looking at the public-private partnerships that were nascent at the time. Um, this idea, uh, we have a terrible history, of not only in the United States, but amongst our partners, um, uh, our allies and partners, of, of developing capabilities um, acutely and, yes. and then forgetting about them and putting things on the shelf. And mm-hmm. we do this with vaccines all the time. Um, and, and so um, I saw... Um, Frankly, in the in the land of the blind, the one-eyed man is king. And so I had a little bit of expertise in vaccines. In chem biodefense, the, the pool becomes even smaller. Um, and so I found myself in that arena um, nice. and, and really trying to investigate public-private partnerships. And, and, and now it's culminated in um, my my leaving active duty. I'm, I'm in the reserves. I'm on the a member of the joint staff, the joint chiefs of staff, where I advise our allies and foreign partners on a number of scientific um, endeavors that we work on together Mm -hmm. um, to include things like vaccines um, and and working also as the PI on a very large vaccine effort um, against uh, aerosolized tularemia, which is a bacteria, um, a very big unsolved problem. So that's a long way of saying it just kind of happened with (laughs) with lots of direction from mentors along the way who clearly saw something that I may Mm -hmm. not have seen. Thanks to them quite the journey and I think it might be really beneficial if you could then tell our listeners about the five stages of vaccine development where we're talking about you know exploratory stage preclinical stages and then from that second question all in one is which of the stages do the greatest challenges typically become a problem sure and I I think there are a couple of ways to unpack that question it's a really uh, seemingly uh, straightforward question um, that is not so easy to answer. Mm-hmm. And so I think there are a number of different ways we can look at this. We can look at it from the, that very earliest stage of, of just coming up with an idea and coming up with some data around um, how do we tackle problems? And I think I think even before we go there, let, let's just talk for a second about what is the purpose of vaccines, right? I mean, vaccines, we, they, they almost become something we don't really think too much about. Um, however, it is, it is arguably probably one of the greatest inventions, starting with Jenner and our smallpox mm-hmm. vaccines, um, to current vaccines where we're trying to do things like um, deal with COVID-19 and yeah. um, uh, even things like HIV um, mm-hmm. or, or, or dengue or, or malaria. Um, very, very different types of problems. But there's no question that vaccines um, have prevented uh, more deaths 
than probably any of our other medical um, interventions combined. Mm -hmm. While we've only eradicated officially one disease with a vaccine, which is smallpox, um, uh, there are certainly success stories all over the landscape. And so the question then becomes, well, if, if, this, if it has such a great impact, why don't we just do this for everything, mm -hmm. right? And this gets back to this idea because it's really, really difficult. And the difficulty comes at all of the stages that you outlined. In those very earliest stages, scientists probably look for um, uh, ways to solve these problems um, with hundreds of different candidates, literally hundreds, mm -hmm. to try and find the right combination of, of uh, antigens or uh, molecules that will invoke an immune response, which is what vaccines do to offer some protection, if they're protective vaccines, mm -hmm. um, to, uh, to the final product. And the reason it takes, we, we may start with hundreds, if not thousands of potential candidates at that very earliest stage that you talked about to move into a preclinical stage where we then test it in animals. Well, the best model for a human response to a vaccine is a human. Mm -hmm. And what we do is we actually use animals to, to answer many of these questions. And the immunology of some of those animal models is quite and strikingly different than, than it is for humans. Yep. We are very, very complex. We've engineered some of those animal models to look very similar. It gives us a different set of responses. And so their immune system um, is quite distinct from what we end up with in humans. And so we're really just guessing until we get it into people. So we've gone now from hundreds or thousands of candidates to maybe dozens in animals. And then the animals do help us move forward to those stages where we actually have to make it and test it in, in people, right? And, and those, are, those are our later stages of development of those five you talked about. Yes. And so when we start to, the first complication comes, can we make it, right? Can we make it in a form that's stable, um, that's safe? This is a, both regulatory and scientific mm -hmm. realm. Um, there are lots of ways that we make vaccines that are very tried and true. Um, and uh, basically just taking a gamish, a, a soup, if you will, of, <laughs> yeah. of antigens and putting it into people um, and using things like scarification, which is how we first invented smallpox vaccines. We still use that technique, by the way. Mm -hmm. It's a very, very highly sophisticated um, mRNA vaccines that we used for, um, for COVID-19, for example, um, that rely on um, all different parts and understanding the understanding of biology, not just from the antigens, but the delivery vehicle. And, and can we recreate lipids um, and nanoparticles that actually deliver the antigen in a way that our immune system recognizes it? Mm -hmm. Are we trying to trigger the, the B cells or T cells or, or just an antibody response? All of these are serious questions that, that arise when we try and decide how we're making it. Um, and so this is not a trivial, a trivial matter. No. Um, and then we have to actually put that into people and start to look at whether or not this is going to have a, the desired response. Um, and of course, we're safety first. Um, and, and these trials tend to be very, very large because, again, from a regulatory standpoint, there's a risk reward balance that we have here. And the risk reward balance is on on balance. Is this going to provide more protection or more of an opportunity for protection than it is the risk of making somebody sick? Mm -hmm. And not just a local site reaction, which is almost universal, mm -hmm. but can can this actually uh, kill somebody if we give it to them because they have an, an over overly active immune response or, or or an allergy or or some unknown effect? Because again, the biology is complicated. Mm -hmm. And then we actually have to get it out to people. Um, how do we transport these vaccines? Do we require a cold chain? 
Um, you know, is is this something that can be lyophilized or freeze dried, if you will, um, and transferred without uh, the need for refrigeration? Mm-hmm. And so I'm I'm purposely hedging my response to your very simple question of which is the most difficult. Mm-hmm. The answer is yes. Um, <laughs> they are all difficult. Yeah. Right? And and so, but each presents different challenges. Um, and along the way, it, it requires a level of specialization. Um, this is, by definition, a team sport. Mm-hmm. Um, vac- vaccine development efforts take many, many years and hundreds of millions of dollars because it's complex across the entire landscape. But historically, I'm thinking that a lot of our listeners will already know this, but the development of a new vaccine typically required somewhere around 10 years. Um, But we've all lived through the past few years and we know the situation. So I'm really wondering, how do you envision the technologies developed and the advancements made throughout the pandemic will be impacting on the 10 year timeline? That's a that's a fantastic question. And I think um, it will absolutely impact the timeline. What I think we learned from the COVID response is that if you throw enough money at a problem and you have enough smart people working on it, you can reduce the timeline. Mm -hmm. What I will also say is that the mRNA vaccines that were developed um, had been in development for many, many years before COVID came up. So this is not just a de novo start from zero. We had Mm -hmm. a running start. And um, the, the SARS-CoV-2, um, uh, by virtue of the spike protein that we've all heard so much about, is particularly amenable to an mRNA vaccine. What I would argue is that there are some intracellular pathogens to include things like tuberculosis mm-hmm. or tularemia vaccine that I'm working on, where those are likely not going to work. Um, and so this is not an answer for all of the different problems we have um, uh, that, that are uh, impacting human health. Mm-hmm. It's a good start, though. Um, I think the other thing that that has been fantastic um, is um, the novel approaches that have been tried. And so we're now looking at next gen, not just, um, you know, uh, transdermal, intradermal, intramuscular um, types of delivery systems for mRNA vaccines, Mm -hmm. but also um, transnasal um, or or intranasal, as they're called. I think that's Mm -hmm. actually a misnomer. Um, but but that's a separate, totally separate conversation. That's just an anatomist kind of mm-hmm. picking away at the, at the words. Um, but but we have other ways of del- delivering these vehicles uh, uh, and and getting the response that we want. And you get a different kind of response. And so um, we also have new ways of manufacturing vaccines that have been going on for quite some time that are now getting new looks. So mm-hmm. um, transgenic plants, for example, there's a huge area of vaccine uh, development, which is growing up these particles, these viral-like particles, VLPs, mm-hmm. in a plant-based system. Um, and so, uh, no surprise, uh, our our uh, our colleagues um, that are working in the tobacco industry are always looking for new vehicles to deliver drug. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think they found that in uh, in some of the tobacco mosaic or tobacco transgenic systems as well. Mm-hmm. This this is a real move forward. Um, people have been working on other kinds of delivery vehicles. They're looking at DNA vaccines, naked DNA. Um, again, how you deliver it is very, very important. But mm-hmm. it, I, I think it's re-energized this idea of of making vaccines through other means. Um, and mRNA, by the way, is very relatively straightforward. Um, it's very easy to manufacture lots of it at a reduced mm-hmm. price. And so for those indications where it will work, great technology. Absolutely fantastic. 
Nice. Um, from that actually really nice link, I really want to ask you, do you think that we'll see needle-free vaccinations enter the mass therapeutics market in the very near future? And then if so, do you reckon there are any kind of technical challenges in developing and then delivering those? Yes. So the, the, again, the short answer is yes. yes. So you ask, it, you, ask a, you ask a great question um, very broadly as you should. Mm -hmm. And so um, so when you when I think of needle free, I actually also think of microneedles yes. um, and mm -hmm. uh, the kind of transdermal delivery that is already in place for, for lots of things like sensing, for example, in diabetics, a great step forward has been the ability mm -hmm. to sense um, uh, uh, glucose levels without a finger stick. Yes. And so I think employing some of those technologies um, for a delayed delivery um, could be really interesting, a depot-like delivery, um, because as, as you probably know, I can't, I can't really think of many vaccines, if any, the vast majority of vaccines that we employ now need to have a prime and a boost strategy. Yes. And so this prime boost strategy can be accomplished in a number of different ways, including a depot um, formulation. So maybe that is um, where you have uh, uh, a, a microneedle um, kind of reservoir that mm -hmm. sits someplace and delivers it slowly over time. Mm -hmm. um, that's one way to certainly do it. Um, uh, maybe, uh, as we talked about before, this kind of intranasal delivery. Yeah. I think that's a fantastic way to deliver. You get it. You get a mucosal response, which mm -hmm. is a little bit different than what you get if you get IM, for example, or mm -hmm. I keep going to my left arm. I guess I maybe I get more vaccines on that side. <laughs> Equally, you can do the, do the right <laughs> arm as well. Mm -hmm. um, uh, but, uh, but you know, that that is certainly another way to think about it. Um, mm -hmm. There are certainly also ways folks are working on um, oral delivery um, where you yes. use um, uh, a conjugated vaccine uh, with, with uh, a, a molecule that actually is a facilitated transport across mm -hmm across the the gut um and that also is is a way to think about it and, and they're showing great promise but again i think um you will have folks calling out each one of those as the solution mm -hmm. what i would argue is that those are good solutions when they work for the indication that you want yeah um and and so i think not every single application is going to be covered off but absolutely one of the one of the the real problems, and we haven't touched on this, but maybe you will. Mm -hmm. One of the real problems with vaccines is not that we can make them or deliver them or that they save lives, but vaccine hesitancy is a huge problem. Yes. Mm -hmm. and, and in Europe, as you probably know, France is the, the class leader of, of, of vaccine hesitancy. And much of that is because of the way we deliver vaccines. Mm -hmm. um, uh, I decided not to be a pediatrician um, after uh uh, seeing that I would have to give multiple vaccines to lots of little kids. Mm -hmm. um, and I, and I'm, I guess I'm frightening enough looking already um, <laughs> to little kids that when I start approaching them with, with uh, needle. you know, with a needle, um, it just gets worse from there. So I can't imagine a <laughs> worse way for me to spend my day. I'm happy someone else does it. But, you know, this is this is a huge problem. Vaccine hesitancy is, is, is a real problem yeah. um, that we could solve if we didn't have to give um, uh, shots. Think yeah. of the oral polio vaccine. Um, yes. And what that did for being able to get out into the community um, and be able to vaccinate lots and lots of people. Mm -hmm. uh, polio, thankfully, has been nearly eradicated um, um, because we made an effort to not only find a different way to give it, but a different a form. That's a whole other conversation. But I think um, but I think this is a, a huge problem. So if we can do needle free delivery, I think we uh, I think that the children of the world would stand up and applaud. So I mm -hmm. think this would be a great thing. 
Absolutely. And I mean, even adults who are needle phobic, I think it could really revolutionize their lives. I mean, if you think when you go on holidays, you need different kind of injections for different areas of the world, it could significantly be, I know that's kind of a trivial thing, but if that's somewhere that you wanted to go, but you were needle phobic, it's kind of weighing up the pros and cons, isn't it? So it's a, it's a broad issue for kind of everyone. Yep. I, I think it's, it is, uh, it is kind of a low hanging fruit from a public health perspective. And I, and I think it also gets to this other idea of this is not just a scientific issue. Mm-hmm. Um, there is in a, a science, science, I mean, bench science yeah. issue. This is actually a public health issue. Mm-hmm. And one of the things that I've pushed very, very hard on um, is this idea of more and better interplay between um, our bench scientists, our research scientists, physicians, and public health professionals. Um, uh, and, and, and again, this is because you can have the best solution in the world, but if you don't employ it in the right way, mm-hmm. um, it actually does nobody any good. Exactly. And, and so I think we've got to do a better job. And bearing in mind your background, I know that a large part of the military's role in global health is in aid distribution and crisis management. Could you talk about the military's focus on ensuring vaccines are accessible? And what do you think are some of the key barriers to vaccine equity and stuff like that in terms of this right now? So um, I, I will I will claim up front um, that most of my work is done in the chem biodefense space, mm-hmm. um, which is a little bit different. Um, it's a little bit different than the public health response. And it's mm-hmm. not that the military doesn't have a huge public health infrastructure. And there are folks that think about this all the time. Mm-hmm. It's just not my day to day. It's not what I think about day to day. Yes. <laughs> that said, um, it is a huge issue for me just, um, and I think everybody that is in this space, is there a way to solve both the military need and the attendant problem of um, how do you get these things out um, mm-hmm. in a way that actually solves a problem? Because there, there is a bit of that. If I can't get a vaccine to a population that needs it, or as I said before, there's a cold chain requirement, um, I need to store it at minus 80, for example. Mm-hmm. Well, that's just not going to work. I can't do anything with that. If I can't get it to the people that need it, I might as well not make it. Um, and so um, there is a huge uh, push within the military, thankfully, um, for people who are much smarter than I am, thinking about this. And it, and it happened with COVID about vaccine equity. Mm-hmm. And this idea of equitable distribution is more than just um, uh, the pragmatic um, how do we get that out there? But it has real uh, implications for um, social and political unrest. Mm-hmm. And so um, if you don't deal with the equity issue, you're creating a future problem. Yes. Um, n- not only is it the right thing to do, and we should all be doing that all of the time, um, but it, it is very, again, pragmatically, you're creating a future problem. And I think we've created that, frankly, with the um, with the, with the COVID vaccine. There, we saw that first world nations, and I hate that term, but I will use it because we all understand what that means. Yeah. Um, the developing world did not have the same access to vaccines um, that, that we all did in the U.S. or in many parts of Europe. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and so um, it, it is a problem. And it creates it creates a, a level of mistrust um, around around public health. Yes. Um, and, and how do we deal with that? Um, I think sub-Saharan Africa is a great example. Um, mm-hmm. we, we do, in fact, have, I'll go back to something I know, um, uh, we do have a vaccine um, against uh, some forms of uh, Ebola. Mm-hmm. It actually works quite well. Um, I would argue that I might have an easier time getting it as a military member 
traveling to Africa than somebody on the ground who's actually at Mm -hmm. risk of getting the disease. Yes. How do we deal with that? And whose job is it? And I think, I think maybe this is something that, that should be explored further. Um, Many in the military would say, well, that's, that's not my job. My job is to ensure that I'm protecting the warfighter, um, which is in part true. Um, Public health would say, well, my job is to ensure that, um, that that we get vaccine out to those that are at the greatest risk. Who then owns the portfolio, if you will, mm-hmm. of, of equitable distribution of vaccines? Is it a public, is it even a public um, function or is it a private function? Mm-hmm. Is Pfizer, not to pick on Pfizer, um, but they do have the, 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 the largest mm-hmm. um, vaccine program. Is it part of their mandate? And I think we haven't really worked through that yet. And then again, who's going to pay for that? Mm-hmm. And I think all of these are very thorny issues where we have to, again, reach across um, the aisle, if you will, and 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 involve um, political scientists and anthropologists and social scientists, politicians, um, uh, to a certain extent. I'm yeah. I'm feeling a bit bruised after the the recent elections that we just had the the cycle in the U.S. So yes. I'm, I still have hope for future politicians, but mm-hmm. uh, we'll see whose job is it. And so I would throw the question back to you. Where do we think the responsibility lies? Because I would say it doesn't exist in just any one arena. Mm-hmm. It's a cross, isn't it? It's. But then if you take it back to the COVID-19 pandemic, since the pandemic, do you feel that the military would look to have a role to play in the future global vaccine delivery? Or I guess the question realistically should be, do you think they should play a role in this future global vaccine? They they should and do. And so Mm -hmm. I think Operation Warp Speed, which was the public-private partnership in the U.S., which involved some members of the military, frankly, because what the military does very, very well, I'll tell you where I think the the pieces that I I think they should own. Mm -hmm. Again, this is a decision way above my level, but I think I can have an opinion. Mm -hmm. So um, in my opinion, the military does logistics very, very well. Yes. What we do is we actually get things from point A to point B, uh, because that's the entire apparatus of the military is is how do we support um, the the military members that are forward deployed. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we have a, we have an infrastructure, uh, an expertise in infrastructure around logistics that is un, probably unmatched. Mm-hmm. And so I think we can serve that function. Um, but what that requires is somebody then giving direction to where do we think it needs to go. Mm-hmm. Um, and so once once we have that mission, I think the military can serve that function. If you tell our logistics experts where they need to go and, and when they need to get there, the answer It'll will be, be yes, we can do that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think the, the thornier question is around where and uh, for whom. Mm-hmm. And then, given your background, again, what, mm-hmm. if anything, do you think the scientific community can really learn from this kind of military approach to challenges like vaccine development and manufacturing? Uh, absolutely. And I think the military doesn't get it right all the time, right? I think mm-hmm. we've learned a lot. Um, frankly, the, the the vaccine program that I'm involved in for uh, aerosolized tularemia, which is an intracellular bacteria, mm-hmm. um, it's a, it has a fascinating history. Um, by the way, you should just I encourage folks to look it up. Mm-hmm. It was uh, it was weaponized by the Russians. Um, it was it, it was deployed probably in Stalingrad in World War II. Um, okay. It is endemic to some regions of the world where we have conflict now, like the Ukraine and Russia. Um, and we have no good, um, uh, no, no approved uh, vaccine for this. Mm-hmm. Um, it is a, it is a fascinating area where 
probably tens of bacteria can kill you if it's inhaled. Mm-hmm. Um, it's also called rabbit handler's disease. So there, there are lots of things we can kind of learn from history. What, what I think we haven't learned and what we, we, we I hope we've learned from COVID mm-hmm. is that it's not enough to, to, to do a start stop on these things where we then develop products or programs and then put them on a shelf. Mm-hmm. Um, we, we need to close the loop on this. It happened with Ebola. There some of the same drugs, by the way, that didn't work for Ebola, um, didn't work for COVID, but okay. we wouldn't have, we didn't know that, um, because we didn't close the loop and do some of the work. So the antivirals, mm-hmm. and, I, and I shouldn't say they don't work, they just don't work very well. Mm-hmm. Um, so we use the, some of the same antivirals um, against Ebola because they target the same mechanism of replication, viral replication, for COVID. Okay. And it turns out that we had to start those programs all over again um, because we didn't continue what we started there. Mm-hmm. So the funding starts, the funding dries up, and then they just kind of sit around and they languish. And this is where the private partners tell us that we're, we're, we're not helping them. Mm-hmm. They can't carry the load. Um, and it becomes more expensive to restart. So I, I'm hopeful that we will actually be devoting resources to future pandemic efforts. Um, and, and I think that is not a military function, mm-hmm. but we are certainly part of it. Um, yeah. and, and so I think what, what I think we've also learned is, again, that the military does logistics really, really well. Yeah. And so if you need to move things from point A to point B, fantastic. But you better have the political will to actually do that and give direction because the the military loves to be told what to do. I have to say, (laughs) I mean, it it is, it is a, it is a system set up to be told what to do. And so the politicians need to step up and tell us what to do. Mm -hmm. And can you talk about some of the key disease areas where there's an unmet need in vaccine development and how do you envision that we'll tackle these diseases going forward? Wow. Um, Broad again for you. (laughs) Yeah, that is a, that is a, uh, we could spend an, hours talking about this and so mm-hmm. i think it depends on what you're where you're what you're what lens you're wearing right so i'll maybe i'll talk about some programs where i think um there is work mm-hmm. going on and there still needs to be more work done mm-hmm. and so i think we, we we talked a little bit about this i think we've done a great job smallpox is eradicated i think i can make that statement and and there may be some fringe um uh, members and i don't mean that in any negative way just mm-hmm. a small number of of your listeners that will disagree with that i think mm-hmm. Far and away, most people agree that we've tackled smallpox mm-hmm. um, and that it's eradicated. Um, now, monkeypox and some of the other uh, viruses, which are not related, by the way, mm-hmm. um, but some of the other things that are out there that sound the same, um, notwithstanding, um, smallpox is done. Uh, measles, we've done a great job with measles. So there are still outbreaks, mm-hmm. um, and these are mostly in vaccine-hesitant communities or those that have not been vaccinated. But if you get vaccinated um, against measles, it will likely work. And so the number of cases has gone down greatly. Um, Malaria would be a, this is an area where there's an unmet need. Um, There's fantastic work going on right now around a a pan-malarial vaccine. Um, I would would guess that probably within, well, I'll go out on a limb. I'll say within the next 10 years, we will likely have a solution for certain types of malaria um, that exist. And if we could solve even a portion of that problem, it is the single largest, deadliest disease that we know now kills more people than anything else. And there's a huge unmet need. So mm-hmm. I think if we could tackle that, that would be great. And that is that is just the hard work of doing good science um, over many, many years 
um, investing lots and lots of money because it's not an easy or um, or easily tractable kind of problem. And so, that, but, but I think we'll solve it. TB is another one where I think um, this is a difficult target um, as a as a, a largely intracellular pathogen. Um, uh, it is tough for the immune system to get access to it. So even if you have a vaccine. Um, it may not work, but mm -hmm. this is another big science problem, not easily solved. Lots of people thinking about it. Mm -hmm. Give it 10 years. I think we'll, we'll get there. Dengue um, is another one where we have interesting models. Now, there's just a recently approved human infection model developed by the military um, in, okay. in partnership with a, a private company mm -hmm. um, where they can test vaccines. I think we'll have a dengue specific vaccine in the next decade, um, if not sooner. Yeah, would be fantastic, right? So here's one where I think we're we're people have been working very very hard, and I just don't think we're going to get there. Mm -hmm. um, HIV. And I was so going to mention a, this. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, there's a huge push for an HIV vaccine. Mm -hmm. There have been some uh, um, potential successes, but the the efficacy has been you know thirty forty percent, and yeah. and so it's just not there yet. Mm -hmm. um, but that was also a military program. Um, working with the uh, Thai government, um, and so they, they the vaccine is is they've been trying for years and years. Mm -hmm. I think they will get there at some point, but it, it may not be for everybody. Mm -hmm. um, it, it, it's worth mentioning that you know even if we target high risk populations, um, whether that's um, uh, sex workers or areas uh, of the world where we can we can hopefully put a dent on in, into this this kind of problem, that would be fantastic because mm -hmm. there are, there are. Um, concomitant illnesses that you get with HIV infection that are just worse, mm -hmm. right? We haven't talked about invasive fungal infections or things that that impact people with the yeah. with the immune system problem. Mm -hmm. So there there are those types of areas where I think there's a lot of work going on, um, and and we'll get there. The, the again the mRNA vaccines will solve some huge problems. I think we're mm -hmm. going to get a pan influenza vaccine or at least something that looks. Um, like that very, very soon. And I think it, it, it will likely be an mRNA vaccine yeah. uh, because of the speed with which we can make it rather than incubating virus and eggs and doing all of that kind of stuff. So mm -hmm. I think I think the hard work is still, is still uh, there are plenty of hard problems that will not be solved by one technology. But um, I think there, there are just lots of areas where we can we can make huge improvements. I think if, again, if, if any single approach in science could be given a Nobel Prize, um, it would be, let's give a Nobel Prize to vaccines writ large. <laughs> yes. right? And so like this is, it, 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 I think we forget sometimes about how tremendously this has changed um, the, the yeah. human landscape. It's, in, it's um, incredible. Yep. Um, so so uh, uh, let me ask you a question, mm -hmm. right? Since you've asked me all the questions so far and you'd have no knowledge that this question is coming. Okay. Um, have you gotten your flu vaccine yet? Of course. I okay, I actually want to so I had it I had it quite late last year actually yeah, yeah. um but then I'm looking to have it in a month ish whenever okay. I can get it I'll be there okay perfect um so we're seeing data already this year some other studies that I'm doing are tracking in the population mm -hmm. um uh COVID and influenza and a mm -hmm. couple of other diseases um through wastewater and so it's a wastewater surveillance study um to inform kind of our vaccine efforts and so I'm, I'm doing that now. And, and, and in the U.S. anyway, the number of COVID cases has gone down, okay. but it's ticking back up again. And so the increase this week is up around another 5%. Mm -hmm. And we're seeing, again, uh, uh, influenza 
um, COVID and RSV, respiratory syncytial virus in, yeah. in pediatric uh, cases. So mm-hmm. it is just my uh, my promotional efforts to say, if, if I ask everybody, have you got at least gotten mm-hmm. your flu shot? And then mm-hmm. you can do what you want with the others. But uh, <laughs> yeah. uh, I, I encourage everyone to get uh, their COVID vaccine as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but, uh, you know, at least get the flu shot. So good, good on you can. for that. Mm-hmm. Yep. No, absolutely. I am a big advocate for that, likewise. Yeah. So I, I don't, I don't propose vaccine shaming. No, to a mm-hmm. point, right to a point. Mm-hmm. I, I think, I think a little bit of uh, coercion and pressure is not a bad thing, as long as you don't tip people into being vaccine hesitant. Yeah, do you so know I think what? It's, I think it's an honest yeah. discussion. Mm-hmm. I think it's all about being really, really open to any questions that anyone has yeah. for you, and then you can absolutely. answer them appropriately. If they have those fears, you can kind of say have you considered this or have you considered this and then they can make an informed decision which i think is key to either stance i guess i I love that you said that because really it's an open discussion Mm -hmm. to talk about risk and risk mitigation and being willing and and i'm and i hope that comes across here Mm -hmm. today with your questions we don't have all the answers yeah and and that's okay what i think we need to do is spend more time saying hey that's a really difficult uh, problem that's a great Mm -hmm. question what's your appetite for risk? And then you have an open discussion about mm-hmm. these things. And, and that goes for all of these vaccine efforts, by the way. Mm, no, absolutely. And finally, unfortunately, because we are almost out of time, but where do you think, and a very open question for you, where do you think that the future of vaccine development and manufacturing is heading? And more importantly, what would you like to see happen? What I would like to see is the democratization of vaccine um, manufacturing. And, and I say that because what is not helpful is when we have, and we learned this in the COVID outbreak, um, uh, uh, we learned that um, having a single regional players control the, Mac, the, the vaccine uh, development and manufacturing made it really hard from a logistical mm-hmm. standpoint. So when one plant goes down, we lose um, a huge portion of our ability to deal with the problem. Mm-hmm. And so what has to happen Um, is not around the manufacturing technology. I'll leave that to others to kind of think about. We've talked a little bit about that. Mm -hmm. But what I will say is that that we need to do more um, IP and patent pooling um, to be able to transfer some of the manufacturing and tech transfer some of the manufacturing processes um, to areas of the world so that we have a just-in-time kind of manufacturing solution. We shouldn't be making vaccine in France or the U.S. or the U.K. um, or China or Japan only. What we should be doing is very, and people are moving towards this, just not quickly enough. We should be developing patent pools so that you can, for example, in Northern Africa or Sub-Saharan Africa or regions of the world where, frankly, there are very, very smart people with a need for manufacturing. Mm -hmm. um, We can transfer that technology, allow them to make it locally, allow the economies to benefit from that manufacturing um, and also to get it out to people more quickly. So I think the solution actually lies again with the logistical um, uh, issue and, and how do we actually get the, the great science out to people that we that we're developing instead of holding on to it so tightly and, I, and I'm afraid that there are pushes um, in in uh, certainly in the U.S. but also in in Europe to um, to build um, solutions in geographies where it's going to be used but we're not really thinking about other parts of the world yeah. and so make it in the US or make it in Canada or make it in, in France or, or the UK is a bit of a push. And, and I think it's it's actually not the best way to approach it. What we should be doing is saying, hey, how can we have a worldwide response 
and maybe patent pools is a way to do it. Mm-hmm. So anyway. Incredible. Well, we are just about out of time. I've thoroughly, really genuinely enjoyed this conversation. It's been so insightful. And I know our listeners will have had so many questions answered. Um, And I have to ask, because I know so many of the listeners will want to know, but how can people contact you if they do have any questions or just want some further information about you and what you do? Sure. So I think one of the one of the best ways is you can certainly just use um, Google and and look me up and you will see the different kinds of affiliations that I have. And it depends mm-hmm. on, on how you want to contact me. But my contact information will will be there. Um, we can certainly also uh, we'll speak offline and we can make it available if people mm-hmm. reach out to you. I'm happy to do that as well. So Fantastic. always happy to, to get uh, comments or questions from uh, folks going forward. Perfect. Well, thank you so much for joining me. Um, As I said, I've really, really enjoyed myself. And thank you so much for joining this incredible Opinionated Science podcast. Great. Thanks so much, Lucy. What an incredible podcast that was. Thanks so much for joining us. And I hope I'll see you again very soon.